welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. This is how Admiral Jim Stockdale survived eight years in the Hanoi Hilton. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Lead teacher Randy Pope brings us this Easter message entitled, Set Free by Confronting the Brutal Facts, which covers Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to all. We're glad to have you here. And uh, I go through this service, and I think, I know it's going to be a great service in the hangar, but Boy, I just can't imagine. This was such a a great time to to worship on Easter. And then to think the different people that are here. I I mean, I cannot imagine the diversity of biblical knowledge represented here. Some that know very little to nothing about the Bible. The others that are virtually scholarly about the Scriptures. I mean, all over the board. We were talking about that in my discipleship group, we call it Journey Group, this last Monday night, and we were talking about Easter and how so many people don't really understand Easter and so forth, and that subject reminded me of a story, and I shared with them, and the story is simply that one of my children was in Sunday school class years ago, and it was at Easter time, and the teacher asked the question, uh, who can tell us the meaning of Easter? And one of my children spoke up and said, I'm not sure, but I think it's when the Easter bunny rose from the dead. (laughs) Now, if any of you fathers feel pressure to be a good teacher to your children, no, you don't have a high standard from your pastor here, that's for sure. (laughs) But uh, this child wasn't quite sure, knew it had to do with resurrection and had to do with uh, a bunny as far as this child knew. Well, one of the guys in the group started laughing harder than they should at that story and realized it wasn't because the story I told, but the story that it reminded him of. And he shared with us the story of an employee at his business. And uh, she had a next door neighbor that they were in conflict with each other. And it so happened that she comes home from work one day and sees her dog with the bunny rabbit, the pet from next door, the child's pet, in the mouth of the dog, dead. And so she thought, oh my goodness, if things are bad now, imagine when they find out our dog has killed their rabbit, their pet. And so thinking very quickly, she decided at least try. So she took the bunny rabbit, put it in the tub and washed it, took the hair dryer and got it all fluffy where it looked good. And then very quietly slipped in the backyard where the cage was and put the bunny back in the cage. Now, you can imagine, you can imagine what happened when that lady sees their dead bunny in the cage. Particularly realizing that the day before the bunny had died and they had buried it in the backyard. Now, if anybody's trying to figure out, well, how did the dog get the bunny? Well, obviously, dug the bunny up after it was buried. Well, you know, a lot of people new to the Christian faith, they say, oh, it's Easter, Easter. You know, yeah, he came up from the dead, and who knows? Somebody rolled the rock, somebody pulled him out. I don't know, but 
Let me tell you, those of us that truly know Christ, we're convinced the King of kings and Lord of lords rose from that grave. And it's on the basis of that resurrection that we have the absolute certainty that we can and many of us have been set free. That's the theme of what we're worshiping around on this Easter, and I have the privilege to address in a few short minutes. To do so, I think we probably could agree, just from the outset, that there are, there are two inherent longings as we are relating to this theme of set free. To be set free, we've got to have two things we all long for. One is to be right. The other is to experience delight. Easy words to remember. I know we've got kids here. I've seen a number of kids. I know we have our kids' quest going on, but, but we have a number of kids here today. And I'm happy that you're here. Glad you're here. I absolutely believe what you're going to be hearing in the next few minutes, kids, might be the most important thing you could ever remember. I'm going to make it simple where you can remember it. But you remember those two words, right and delight. When a person has those two, they have this thing called freedom. They are truly set free. Now, when we think about being right from childhood, I mean the earliest, earliest ages, we want to be right. We don't want to be found wrong. We don't want to be guilty. We want to be right. I can remember from childhood in our own family, our four kids raising them, just they like, like me, want to be right. I remember one of our children, and when I use, when I use an illustration with my children, you know, I, I don't want to embarrass them, so I just don't use the name of the child. I just try to keep them, you know, a little bit private. But I will say that this particular child, first name starts with the letter David. But this child, I remember getting something that I had said you couldn't get. It was either a piece of candy or a cookie. I don't know. But, but no, you can't have that. And while I wasn't looking, he thought he grabbed it in his hand. So I turned around and I said, what's that in your hand? He's got it behind him. He says, nothing. Did you take that cookie or candy, whatever it was? Nope. Well, what's in your hand? Nothing. Let me see your hand. How'd that get there? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll find a way to be right. I mean, somehow we want to be right. I remember, I remember this uh, kid. I told this story years ago, but there's this one kid who we live next door to a school, an elementary school, and I happen to have a study that's right up next to the front door. It has windows. I can look outside if the shades are open. And, and I just noticed that one day the, phone, the, the doorbell rings and I go to the door. Time I put my stuff down and get up. I go to the door. Nobody's there. And I think, oh, what was that? And I go back. And the next day, it happened again. And the next day, and I noticed it was happening at the exact same moment. So I decided enough of that. And so I started looking out to see. And sure enough, I see this little kid run up to the doorbell. And other kids are walking down. rings the doorbell and then sprints off to be with the other kids. So I said, all right, tomorrow's the day. So the next day, about that time, a few minutes early, I'm sitting at the door, and I've got the 
doorknob turned, and the minute the doorbell is touched, I sling open the door, I make the meanest looking face, and I scream, what are you doing? Like that. And he stumbled back and, ho, 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 like that. And I said, let me ask you, why are you doing this? And he says, huh, I, I, I think it's something that I ate today. <laughs> I laughed. I said, you know, that's okay if you want to ring the doorbell, but, you know, it's, you might want to stop. I'm not mad at you or anything, but you might want to work on your excuses. That was not a very good one. <laughs> something that I ate. Well, we want to be right, correct? Absolutely. Second thing, we want delight. If we, I mean, our whole life is spent trying to find experiences and relationships and, and uh, success stories that make us feel delight, that, that we're just, it just that makes us feel good. We're searching for it. By the way, do you know why we do that? It's because we're designed for those two. Our creator, God, designed us to experience being right and experiencing delight. The question is, how do we go about getting it? There are different options. Uh, I, I think of three for either one or the other being right or delight, or maybe both. One is by being bad. Do you know kids are, are being enticed today to say, if you do these wrong things, you'll find incredible delight. That won't make you right, but it'll at least give you delight. Unfortunately, it takes some, a youthful experience finding out that the habits and the addictions and the issues of life and the pain and the struggles and so forth, it really didn't bring the delight they thought it would. But most people can check that off, say, well, really, I don't guess really, you know, being bad would bring delight. It certainly doesn't make you right. So we've got a second option, and many of us here have employed this second option. Even those of us that truly are following a relationship with the Lord, for some reason we haven't quite yielded to say this really doesn't work to bring delight or to make us right, and that is being good. We tend to think if I can just be good and do the right things, not be found wrong too often, if I can, if I can do good things, then good things will happen to me in return and I'll feel better. If I do good things with my body, I'll have longer health. It just doesn't matter. Just good is going to bring delight. Only to find out after a lifetime, not really. There's a third option, and this is what's found in the Bible. It's really what Easter is all about, as is the whole work of God. And that's the idea of being made righteous. It's something God does to us. As we talk about Easter, looking through the eyes of the personal experience of a man named Apostle, uh, the Apostle Paul, we're going to understand a little bit about this right and delight. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to open with me to the book of Philippians. And if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 3, as you're, as you're doing that, let me mention a book that uh, I'm sure many of you in the business world have read. came out a number of years ago called Good to Great by a man named Jim Collins. And what he did is he studied 11 companies over a 30-year period. I think it was 69 to, uh, I mean, uh, uh, 95 to, to um, 30 years after that. He, uh, wouldn't be that, what was it? 65 to 95, I think it was. 65 to 95, that's right. 
During those years, he studied these companies, 11 companies that sustained cumulative stock return three times the general market. And they said, what made these companies so outstanding? This is what he says, a very interesting insight. He says, to go from good to great, companies have to turn data into information that cannot be ignored. Think of those words, data and information. You take data, from that we get the information we have, and then we have to pay attention to it and not ignore it. You know, the same is true with people. Kids and all of us, what we have to do is we have to take the data about being bad or being good and say, really, what does it tell us? I can't ignore the fact that in reality, the story of mankind is it's not giving people what they want. It's not making them right. It's not giving them delight from experience and certainly from not what the Bible teaches. Only by being made righteous. So Collins goes a little further and says this. He says, good to great companies display an ability to create a climate, and listen to this, where truth is heard and the brutal facts are confronted. And by the way, that's the same thing that's true for churches. Great churches create a climate where truth is heard and brutal facts are confronted. Now, the Apostle Paul had to confront in his own life experience three brutal facts And these facts, simple as they may be, they can be fairly brutal. But he confronted them. And as a result, he went from good to righteous. I believe that what we're sharing here is truly the secret to understanding life at its best. You miss this, you'll never figure out life. You grab hold of this, you'll find what life was designed to be. Kids, I'm not going to do any kind of offer like I do at Christmas Eve. We'll hold that to then. But you may want to negotiate with your parents or something on this one. And and just remember the three brutal facts. Let's jump into them. Number one, you have this in your outline if you're interested. Number one, brutal fact number one, our best credentials don't justify Justify. The word justify means to be made right. The best credentials in the world. This is what the Apostle Paul could not ignore. And so in the Apostle's own view of himself, he had the best and best of all credentials. He had the best. Only to discover in time that he had the wrong credentials. But the credentials that he thought were so important had to do with the things that he was doing himself. Let me mention a few of them. First of all, there was his family background. I'm going to take verse 4, first of all, and kind of brings us into it. It says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He's saying, if anybody thinks that they have the right credentials, he said, I should believe that I am that one. And now... He gives some reason. He says, check out my family background. And then in verse 5, he puts it this way. He says, circumcised the eighth day, which means he was an eighth-dayer. Not all Jewish people were. The parents didn't follow it to the detail, but that was, if you were doing it correctly, you took the sign of God's covenant people when you were eight days old, and he had done that. 
of the nation of Israel. He didn't come out of a different nation in among the Israelites. He says, I am from the nation of Israel. In fact, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now that's interesting because Benjamin was the son of Jacob and this was his favorite son. And so, I mean, he says, I'm from the best of the best. He says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And then he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. Now, he was unlike some of those other Jewish groups, the sects, uh, the chauvinistic zealots as they were called, or those people that were the radical Sadducees or the political Herodians. He says, I wasn't one of those. I mean, I was at the best of the best of all sects. There were none any better. So he says, family background, nobody's going to beat me. That was part of his credentials. But then he goes secondly, and he starts talking about his religious effort. Not only did he have the credentials, he had the effort. In verse 6, It begins by saying, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, what he was saying is, uh, that would sound at first, well, that's not too good. He's doing something wrong and bad, but not in his mind then. Because the Israelites, the people of God, were being threatened by this new sect called Christians. And they felt that was eroding the very nature of the historic belief of the one God. And and just only the Israelites could have that. And here comes this guy preaching a different message. And and they they think, well, we've got to to put them down. And so Paul comes along and he says, I'll do it. I'm that zealous for my faith. And he imprisoned Christians, even used the law to put some to death. So he says, zeal, man, nobody more zealous than me. Then he comes to his third, and he says, moral goodness. At the end of verse 6, he says this, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Now, can you imagine any of us saying, you know, according to the Bible as I'm reading it, I think I'm fairly blameless. He's not just saying this. He's saying, you know, you look at all the laws, and, man, I was so meticulous to try to keep, man, I'm telling you, I, I was basically blameless to the things the Old Testament law has to say. Pretty impressive. It reminds me so much of the men that I'm meeting with over lunch. I hear it over and over and over again. People that are searching the faith, trying to figure out Christianity, and and I'll say, you kind of use the same uh, intro because I love to hear this story. I say, tell me, tell me about your spiritual pilgrimage. If I can help you any way, I'd like to know kind of where you are and where you've come from. And I hear this story over and over, and it's the same Christless credentials. The credentials are, well, you know, I, I come from a very good religious family, and da-da-da-da, I hear that, I've heard it often, obviously, many people who haven't come from that kind of family, but I'll hear some say, you know, my grandfather was a preacher, and so forth, and so on, and so, and, and, and you know, it's religious, I, I, I still kind of go to church some, and I'm pretty religious, and I'm definitely a good person, and I sit there, and I think, this is exactly where Paul was. He's thinking, I've got all these credentials, only to realize they were bogus credentials. They're not legitimate, not in the sight of God. So we come to verse 7, and he somewhat summarizes what he said. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those credentials, he says, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He said, they're of no value to me whatsoever. I count it as loss. You see, the truth of it is, Everything changed on the road to Damascus. Some of you know the story in the book of Acts. 
Paul is about his business, being zealous for his own people. And this great light shines, realizes the presence of Christ himself, captures Paul's heart. He realizes at that moment that he had bogus credentials. He realized later that what he had was a, what he would call in the book of Colossians a certificate of debt as if hanging around his neck. And he didn't even realize it was there, only to realize that that certificate had to be taken and had to be swapped for a new certificate, one that was blood-stained, that stamped on the very front of it says, paid in full. Do you understand that's what happened on the Good Friday before this Easter? It's when Jesus on the cross would say, it is finished. What's he saying? It's paid in full. This is what was required to take a certificate of debt hanging around people's neck, not even aware it's there, and to be able to take it off, see it, understand it, and have it removed and substituted for a different certificate. It's what Paul would later write about in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He puts it this way. He says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions or sins. But look what it says in verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It would be as if he's walking along, carrying his cross up to Calvary for his own execution. And he sees one of us and he says, Lewis, come here, come here, come here. And there sees that certificate and says, let me have your certificate. Let me have your certificate of debt. Lewis takes it off and hands it to him and he takes it and he turns to the centurion and he says, can I use your mallet there? Can I have one of, those, one of those spikes? And he lays it on the cross and whack, and he nails it right into the cross. And then turns and says, Elizabeth, come here, bring me your certificate. What he's saying is, I've got to take your certificate of debt, and I've got to pay for it. It's not your bogus credentials. It's none of those things that you're carrying around. No, no, no. It's getting rid of a certificate and gaining a new one stamped, paid in full. Anybody here that's trying to figure out Christianity, don't think it's just about, hey, I'll keep my good credentials and I'll do a good job with those credentials. It's not that at all. It's pretty much what the, the great hymn says, nothing to the, in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless I look to thee for grace. That's what Paul understood at that moment on the road to Damascus. And the gates of heaven flew wide open. You want the heaven, heaven's gates open for you? That's how you find it. It's changing that certificate. Now that's the first brutal fact that he had, to, he had to learn. And perhaps that's more important for you that are trying to figure out the faith, saying, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I hope I am. I don't know. Well, this is what, this is what you got to know. But the second brutal fact, it's something that I think most of us here as Christians, you and I are struggling to embrace this one. 
as we are in number three. But this one, brutal fact number two, the best of things don't satisfy. He goes on basically to say all things, whether it be your possessions, whether it be your relationships, your activities, nothing sets you free. Here's how he says it in verse 8. He says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. This word loss that was used in verse 7 and now in verse 8, do you know that this is only used one other place in the New Testament? You know where it is? It's used where Paul has been taken prisoner. He's in a ship that's going to wreck. Everybody's going to lose their life in this storm. They know it. And they decide kind of as a last effort, let's throw everything off overboard, all the tools, the supplies, the food, everything, and maybe we save our lives. And they say this stuff that's very important otherwise, we realize, comparatively speaking, we consider it loss. It's of no value. And he goes on to say, I've suffered the loss of all things, but not just suffered their loss, which is painful to suffer a loss. It's painful to, to see that the things we love are not the things that are going to satisfy and to, and to say, I've got to make a replacement here in terms of my affection and my heart. But he says, I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. By the way, that's a terrible translation. Do you know that? It was a kind of a kind of a smart thing, I guess, to see the Bibles sold and all, but that's not the word that really should be there. Some translations get a little closer to it. They use the word dung, which dung is not an offensive word. It's one that we use sometimes to talk about something so so terrible and vile as dung. But let me tell you, that's not the word. The word in the language of the Greek language that's being used here. The word that he uses would be comparative to the SH word that we say so vulgar we would never put such in the Bible. Isn't it interesting? Paul used it. Because he wanted to make a point. He said, I want every person that sees this to just almost be jolted into thinking it's that worthless. That crude, they're nothing. They mean absolutely nothing. I remember a man who contacted me. He was, he, he was a friend of one of my good friends that I had recently led into a relationship with the Lord the year or two before. And because of their talking and, and this guy seeing my friends change life, finally said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to meet with Randy too. So he calls me. And based on the friendship and relationship that I had, I said, well, absolutely. So we meet Together, and I said, tell me your spiritual pilgrimage. Tell me, tell me where you are. What you... Well, he tells me a story, and he says, hey, basically, my story is this. My story is that I cannot find anything that satisfies. I find out he's a multimillionaire, lives in, if not the, one of the most expensive neighborhoods in all of Atlanta, has this incredibly thriving business. He has, he has a beautiful wife and wonderful family, children. He says, they're all in good health. He said, I've got everything a human typically wants in life, but he says, I'm missing one thing. Nothing satisfies. He goes on to tell me the story that for some reason he finds the greatest satisfaction from, from shopping for clothing, high-end clothing. But he says, there's the strangest thing. 
I get so excited about the trip to get the clothes. I go down to my favorite store in Buckhead. I do my little shopping spree, five, $6,000 of new clothes. I'm just so pumped. I'm so excited. He said, by the time I close my trunk and start the car, it's gone. It's like it does not satisfy. What's wrong with me? He said, no, 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 no. What's wrong with us? That's my story. It's everybody's story. We weren't made to be satisfied by anything, by anyone, except the person of Jesus. That's why he said, I am the bread of life. Those who hunger, you come, you eat of me, you'll never thirst or you'll never hunger again. I'm the water of life. I satisfy. You know, if I were a parent now parenting my children, as I hope I did to some degree when I was young, with my kids at home, I would say to you parents, do everything in your power to teach these two brutal facts to your kids. You let them know the best credentials do not justify, and the best of things will never satisfy. Let them hear that story over and over in a thousand different ways. Then you can come with what I might call brutal fact number three, but reality, this is beautiful fact number three. Christ alone can both justify and satisfy. In other words, that's the only way to be set free. You want to get set free, this is how it happens. You surrender the bogus credentials. As I've already talked about in Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 14, and that's what happened to Paul, and he counts it all as loss. Now, here's the question to close with. The question is, all right, I guess I believe this, and what's going to cause me to count all things lost? I'm a Christian. I'm here excited about Easter, but I have to say, I am consumed with other. And I think that these things, more than anything, even my faith, are really the things I'm, I'm going after. What's going to cause me to consider all things lost? Here's what I would suggest. I would suggest that you have to replace it with something far better. You tell me, what causes a person to give up kids that they love? To give up a career that they're already engaged in? And the answer is a passionate, romantic new love affair many a man and many a woman tosses everything else out to say i got to get that what causes a man or woman to see the kids that they love so much and to say without conscious really saying it but knowing i'm not going to invest much in my kids i'm not going to spend a lot of time with them i can't because i found a, a love that that just has captured me. It's a love of, of career. And it's going to bring me reputation. It's going to bring me wealth to be able to buy things for kids and all the things that we want. But who does that? Except people who say, I long for career to be what determines who I am. What causes a person to give up a sport they've been so in love with for year after year? And all of a sudden, they don't miss it that much because why? They find a new sport that now has kind of captured their attention and interest. It's always the same thing. It's finding something better. That's what happened to Paul. 
And that's what Paul concludes in sharing in the last few verses. In 9 through 11, he's going to basically summarize it by saying, as your outline suggests, number one, Jesus justified Paul. And number two, Jesus satisfied Paul. Look at verse verse 9, where Jesus justified Paul. Here's how he says it. And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith. That's how a person is made right. It's not by the works of the law. It's by faith. That's trust in what he's done for us. In Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It's what we've been talking about in a series that we're in now in this church. The ticket. It's about the righteousness of Christ. What is the ticket? It's his righteousness, not our own. But he concludes his last thoughts with this idea of Jesus satisfying Paul. And to make this just so brief that it ends within a couple of minutes, I'm just going to read the five fill-in-the-blanks. We'll read the text, and I'll just fill in the blanks. But I'm going to give you a little shortened, abbreviated thought to capture each one of them. You might want to write these down if you're a note-taker. But here's what he says in verses 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Captured in there are five things that he's noting. Five things that are bringing him his satisfaction, which made it worth to him to count all things lost. And here's what they are. Number one. Giving him, Paul, a relationship with Jesus. You might want to write these words down. Friendship with Jesus. See, that's what it was all about. To him, it was friendship with Jesus. Can you imagine the most famous, important individual that you've longed to meet, and all of a sudden, this person claims you as a very, very, very close friend? You'd be name-dropping all day, saying, oh, my goodness, look, We have the opportunity as Paul to have the Lord Jesus Christ as not just a best friend, but as our brother. Amazing. That's in part what it means to be set free. And the Muslims, oh, they can say, I know of, I know of Muhammad and I follow the laws. But we get to know our Jesus. That's what Paul understood on that road to Damascus. Number two, allowing him to experience the power of Jesus' resurrection. And the text reads that, that I may know the power of his resurrection. You might just write down these few words, power to change. Don't you want power to change? Don't you want to take anger and be able to turn it to love and to take insecurity and turn it to security? Don't you want to take a selfish person that you are and turn it into a generous person? I do. I can't make myself that, but there's a power, and that's that resurrection power he's talking about. That's what set free is all about. Number three, allowing him to share in the fellowship of Jesus' suffering. You might write down the words purpose in suffering. Paul would later write in the book of Colossians, I rejoice in my suffering. Why? Because he said, I know this, that my great longing of knowing him comes even through my suffering. 
And he says, I'll accept even suffering because it gets to me the ultimate, the best of all, knowing him. Number four, allowing him to conquer his sin. Allowing him to conquer his sin. You might write down the words, strength against temptation. Wouldn't you love to be able to overcome the temptation of the lust and the things that are coming at you? I said, don't try it on your own. You won't be able to do it. But I can give you the ability to do that. That's what it is, in part, to be set free. And then lastly, allowing him to experience eternal life. You might write down the words eternity in heaven. Paul says, man, how good is it to know when my last breath comes here, I'm okay there. Bet you want it, I do. He says, that's what I found on that road to Damascus. Set free. Man, I would challenge and charge every one of us here. Let your life be all about finding freedom. Don't be deceived to think it comes from means that you'll never find it. I got to read this and then I'll pray. I hadn't planned to do this, but my wife shared this with me from a book she's reading and Paul Tripp, great author. I think this says it as well as any. Kids, you listen to this. Obedience never ends freedom. It is the evidence that true freedom has entered your life and liberated your heart. I have been liberated. I have been set free. I've been given new life, new hope, new motivation, new peace of heart and mind. But no, I have not been freed from the authority of another. I have not been freed to walk my own way, to write my own rules, or to do what I choose. No, I have not been given the best of freedoms. I have been freed, though. Not from God's rule, but from my bondage to me. You relate to that? Fellowship, obeying, serving, submitting to God is the thing I was created to do. So it is the place where true freedom is to be found. Rebellion never gives life. You hear that, kids? Rebellion never gives life. Self-rule never brings freedom. So grace has worked to rescue me from me so that I can know the true freedom of serving him. My prayer for all here, may this be a year starting this Easter that you find freedom, that you're set free. And know this, you'll only get it when you're made right and you find the light. Jesus, the sole answer for both. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we bow before you now and we thank you for being able to understand this thing called the gospel or good news. I pray for our friends here that are still searching to figure it out, to understand what does it mean to relate, to know you. Lord, I pray that you would, even now, even as Paul experienced on that road to Damascus, may the gates of heaven fly open as understanding is gained and there is an embrace through faith of what you've done for them. And Father, I pray for those that are still kind of trying to figure it out and struggling. Help them to embrace the brutal facts. Father, for all of us here, God, help us to consider it all lost this year. May Easter to us mean consider it lost in view of knowing you. Grant it, we pray, 
in the great name of Christ. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.